Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Everybody's talking about you now. You know it's true. Because it always has been sports and wine for you. They asked people if you could pay $20 for ESPN and ESPN2 together, Netflix style. And they got, I think, 6% of people said yes, and another 9% said maybe. It could go all the way down. ESPN, that is. Since 2011, ESPN, the worldwide leader in cable TV extortion, has hemorrhaged more than 12 million subscribers, with 620,000 ditching in just one month last fall parent company Disney is worried, as are advertisers and cable providers. The big question, can ESPN prosper in Facebook, Netflix, Amazon, Apple's brave new cordless world? And what does this all bode for the other 927 and a half channels on your cable box? Stay with us. Today's episode is brought to you by Health Warrior, maker of Chia Bars. Why sacrifice taste for health when we put a man on the moon, after all? Sporting only 5 grams of sugar and 100 calories each, Health Warrior Chia Bars are the only bar with superfood chia seeds as the number one ingredient. They've become my go-to power snack with flavors like coconut, chocolate peanut butter, dark chocolate, banana nut, and personal favorite, mango. Pick some up at stores like Whole Foods, Wegmans, Target, or for my RVA listeners, Elwood Thompson's. If you're bold enough to buy a box of 15 bars, get 15% off at healthwarrior.com by entering code FULL15 at checkout. And by Elwood Thompson's. The success of Elwood Thompson's is determined by customer connection, steward happiness, and local community engagement. We intend to grow our business by offering clean, high-quality products at fair prices with friendly, knowledgeable customer assistance. Elwood's is a mission-first driven business. Real local RVA, and you must check out Brunch at Elwood's, now served every weekend, Saturdays till 11 a.m., Sundays till 2 p.m., and The Beat and Indian Wednesdays. Visit them at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from Manhattan at the Bloomberg Global Mothership is Ira Boudway, staff writer at Bloomberg Business Week, where he co-authored this week's cover, ESPN, as in even sports fans prefer not paying for cable. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. And here in studio with me is a friend and mentor and media advisor, Neil Patel, managing director at the Martin Agency, the big ad firm. He was previously an executive at Disney, where he helped develop new media assets, uh, Good Hello. Day. Good day. How are you? How are you? I'm good. Good to be here. Ira, um, I remember when I was at Business Week with you, I mean, I, th- there was the cover several years back. Was it five years back? I mean, ESPN was living large. It was the exception to the rule of cord cutting. It was signing ever bigger deals with sports franchises and, and shaking down cable companies for ever larger cuts every year when negotiations came up. And yet now they're hemorrhaging people. Yeah, I mean, I think in retrospect, we may have caught them at the peak. That story was in uh, September 2012, cover story that we called them the Everywhere Sports Profit Network was the uh, the play on words that time. And uh, that was really, that was when they were at 100 million households, which is as high as it got for now. Uh, and since then, they've lost like 12 million subscribers. So, And it's getting into the kind of jargon, but executives uh, internally have said that they had modeled at least 100 million in perpetuity. So when you're doing, you know, you get into the income statement stuff, cash flow statement stuff, the value of ESPN as a franchise, the money that they could pay out to the likes of the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, even though I don't know what the heck hockey is, uh, that that is, that is like the the... the inherent assumption in there that they were always going to be at least at 100 million. They definitely spent as if they were confident. I mean, they went out right around that time because these rights deals tend to be in cycles and and somewhat in sync. And they went out after that, shortly thereafter, did a huge Monday Night Football deal, did a renewed their NBA deal, Major League Baseball. They've committed so much. I mean, their, their programming costs for this year are set to be about $8 billion. And they are still the cash cow at, at Disney. I mean, Disney, after all, is a corporation that not only owns the theme parks and the enormous licensing and George Lucas and, you know, Star Wars franchises and whatnot, but also ABC, which I imagine is not as much a profit center as it was the old Cap City's ABC. Is this still the cash cow, the make or break line item at Disney? It is the biggest profit generator. I mean, you look at they don't break it down by cable network, but if you look at cable 
networks, which is ESPN is the biggest piece, you're talking about 43% of their profit, which is you take the theme parks, the studios combined are 38%. So, you know, I, I got there right after the big ABC acquisition. And, uh, and then three, four years into it, you could see Eisner in internal meetings just glowing about what ESPN was and became and was on a track to be even back then. So he used to say on record uh, that uh, ESPN was the best thing to come out of the whole ABC acquisition because when he made it in the days when he made it, uh, it was all a distribution play and everybody was very much focused on ABC as sort of the big headliner at that time. Uh, but even early on, you could see what it was going to be and where it was headed. What I'm surprised by, and this was uh, something I saw in your piece, is uh, I was surprised that it took till 2012 for it to hit a peak. I thought mm-hmm. for sure, because I was working in Imagineering, looking at a lot of these assets in the uh, mid, uh, I guess, 2005 period. And uh, I was at that time going, this can't last. How's this going to work? Uh, and it, there you were. <laughs> you were saying they went on to 100 million households in 2011 or 12, whatever that date was. And uh, it was kind of surprising that it went even that long. So. Ira, and I look inside the uh, issue and uh, incredible artwork on it. So you took the SportsCenter logo and it says, got any ideas? Right. Um, the, the subhead in there is ESPN has seen the future of TV and they're not really into it. As more fans cut the cord and go mobile, the network is busy protecting its cable TV money machine. Now, that is that is an innovator's dilemma writ large. Right? Exactly. You talk to Absolutely. public radio, you talk to magazines. I mean, you saw the disruption inside print. You know, the more that this disruption happens, the more you want to hug your profit centers and reliable uh, money makers. And these guys are in no mood, especially when you break out the economics, Ira. I was shocked, like in a $130 cable bill, like these guys are getting – you know, $7 of that cut, upward of $7 versus, say, Bravo is $0.30 cents or mm-hmm. Fox News is a buck twenty. So there's a lot of, of um, expectation and froth embedded in that. Yeah, it's very hard to match that kind of revenue model where they're getting, you know, if you count ESPN, ESPN2, it's more than $8 a month. And, you know, you can do a lot of things in the new media economy, but it that's going to be tough to to replicate. There was always sort of this uh, thought inside the company and, uh, you know, uh, everybody kind of joked about it a little bit. But, you know, there was some truth to it. It's like if you're having a slow quarter, if you're having a slow year, just add another penny or two to the bill uh, going through on cable and, uh, you know, you'd make your quarter. So, uh, you know, again, this was – this was, you know, well before the peak, but it was clear that uh, they have incredible pricing power with the cable guys. And uh, I would imagine they still do actually shows in the skinny bundles that they still have a lot of brand and pricing power. But to your point, that's hard to make up doing all sorts of other digital things and other forms of distribution. Ira, I have a question for you, sir. You know, I'm a huge Lakers fan. I'm a Dodgers fan. I'm really idiosyncratic in my sports appetite stuff. I grew up in Miami. I like the Hurricanes. But before we had certain pro franchises, my relatives in Terangelis would send me Dodgers jerseys and Lakers stuff. So I'm all over the place. And now I live in in Richmond, Virginia, which is strange. So (laughs) I have a huge appetite. Uh, for getting this stuff a la carte on demand. I want to just, uh, especially, you know, you did, a, you did a great feature story on uh, virtual reality and, for example, the NBA. Mm-hmm. So when that happens and to the extent that everything in media has become long tail a la carte, I want my media spending money not to go in this, in this huge shopping basket that Comcast determines the contents of every month, but I want to give this much to Spotify. I want to give this much to the LA Lakers to go to Lakers.com or NBA.com. I want this much to the Dodgers. I want this much to Hurricanes football, Hurricanes basketball, the Miami Dolphins down there. Why can't I just cut to the chase and have a relationship directly with, say, the NBA or NCAA or the franchises? You can now a little bit. I mean, the NBA is the most forward thinking in this, and they are now at a point where you can buy a game a la carte. Um, but that all of that is with the caveat that 
anything that they've promised to their national broadcasters, to their distributors, is is blacked out from that. You know, so, and they still, I think they still need the ESPNs of the world. I mean, and certainly advertisers still want this idea that there's some events that are, are national events that you watch, um, and that everybody, you know, that that an audience across the country might be interested in at the same time. Um, so that's why you know you don't see it just totally. Uh, you know, too many people are invested in the way it works now for it to become entirely, I want to watch this game, only this game, and I want to pay just for it. I mean, the NBA is thinking about, I want to watch the end of this game. Here's $2. Here's the thing, Neil, <laughs> yeah. if I cut to the chase, I loved ESPN. I remember when I was in college, um, and I'm coming on my 20th uh, reunion next year. I had just one dream. I had a couple of dreams, actually. Freshman year, I saw in a frat house that some dude had a JVC 200-disc CD changer. And I said, wow, someday... Wow, you're really dating yourself. Yeah, someday, JVC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someday I'm going to make enough money to buy myself a 200-disc CD changer. And lo and behold, <laughs> by senior year, I had my first MP3. Yeah. And then by senior year, when I had enough to pay for the first cable package at my college, I said, someday I'm going to be of means enough like to get out of the shower in the morning in a nice, luxurious Turkish bathrobe, have a, <laughs> uh, have a little fridge stocked with Snapples, and just watch SportsCenter nonstop before I go to work. Sports Center was was everything for me. I mean, Chris Berman, the 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 parlance, the back, 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 back. It's the, a gateway drug. You know, it's a gateway drug to your habit. Fettuccine, Alfredo, Griffin, like I was perfect, the 20-something, the young 20-something person, and I had a huge, huge willingness to pay for it. Yeah. Right now, I'm 41, and I have no desire to pay for cable. I have no desire to pay for ESPN, and I have no patience for college lacrosse, for hockey, for half the crap that these guys air all day. And I don't watch my highlights on ESPN. I see them on Twitter in the morning or I go on Facebook. It's a it's a real issue because, uh, you know, from our, our standpoint, our business. Uh, in the ad business. In the ad business. We, you know, we're always going to migrate to where the eyeballs are. Uh, what happens is there's always these market discrepancies you see. And we look for these actually where – uh, the audience has migrated to whatever the new thing is, uh, and there's some legacy asset that's you know really well branded and you know is a safe buy, and we could certainly sell through to our clients. Going, hey, we bought more ESPN. Nobody like gets fired for that. Uh, you know, it's sort of like hiring IBM. Nobody gets fired for that. Uh, so we're always looking for these, uh, but eventually, eventually, kind of like the water level rising, you always have the money migrate to where the eyeballs are. We can always, we always end up arguing with uh, the asset owner, who, distribution folks, about what that ought to cost. Uh, but that's always going to be the case. So. For us, you know, we're watching this migration we're, and we're trying to bet ahead of it wherever we can, but we can only go so far. Our clients, it's our clients' money. It's not our money. We're always going to, uh, you know, we're going to experiment with new things, but we're going to stick to a lot of tried and true. That's one part. The other part is, uh, going back to the earlier point, it, we're looking for events. Uh, so I don't blame the NBA or any of these guys for holding back the big games or even uh, the last 15 minutes of a basketball game or the last five. Uh, and I certainly see variable pricing, some sort of a dynamic variable pricing environment coming along where that happens because we can't find big audiences that are watching something live where you don't know what the outcome is going to be and get the kind of engagement that you get, particularly for male audiences who have always been difficult to find, uh, even in the old uh, network television days. So to find these guys uh, available uh, and dynamically available wherever the game of the moment, the last five minutes, whatever that's going to be, uh, is exciting and I think very valuable both to us and therefore to whoever it is that owns those sports rights. So the live event business, I think, is going to be terrific. It's a great time to be in that business. I think, uh, and I think Ira would agree here, uh, where they're really caught is that the, the the rights business is really a gigantic wealth transfer business, right? So my cable bill goes to ESPN. They take something out of it. Hopefully it works for them. Goes to the leagues and then to the owners and eventually the athletes. It always accrues to the athletes and their agents in some way, shape, or form in some disproportionate way. So that double squeeze where there's now more bidders for that, uh, those rights packages uh, where people like Fox are taking uh, loss leaders and so forth, 
uh, that's the double squeeze because they can only pass on a cable bill so much, even ESPN, and those rights fees are continuing to escalate because there's more bidders for them because live programming really matters to us, uh, the advertisers. We can't find those people. The Walt Disney Corporation is an enormous multinational. It was the, you know, up there with Time Warner, Viacom, some of the old stalwarts. It's it's the Dow component, intensely multinational. It's in Asia. It's in Latin America. You have theme parks here in the United States. You have an enormous branding business. You have George Lucas. You have it, Its tentacles are everywhere. And you can imagine that in negotiations with the likes of Comcast, Cable Town, or Charter, Time Warner, that there's huge clout. It's it's a panoply of ESPN channels and ABC Family and ABC and the Disney Channel and those various offshoots and Monday Night Football. Uh, but this is a brave new world right now. Uh, Disney is actually worth less than Facebook. Um, it's worth less than Google. As Neil Patel here likes to say that the value has really gone to the platforms, right? It's the, the, the cable companies. ESPN's not the only game in town. Comcast, which has since bought NBC Universal, has has rather, you know, passionately expanded into sports. The old Comcast Sports is now NBC Sports. We know that Fox Sports poaches talent away from ESPN. For as huge as they are and as massively profitable as they are, they are no longer the only game in town when it comes to cable sports. That's true. Although I think the bigger risks for them are are sort of the systemic problems with cable programming and the business model. Because if, totally you, look agree. At, if you look at their competition with Fox Sports 1, for example, or NBC Sports Network, they just dominate them. It's not really even on the same scale that they operate. And, uh, you know, it's it's a problem on the margins for them. But I think, honestly, all those players came to this game way too late. And, uh, and ESPN is just established there. It's by far the most powerful brand in the space and just has a bigger reach, bigger audience, better brand, and makes a lot more money. Let me underscore some of your analysis. And you co-wrote this story with Max Chafkin. Uh, ESPN still towers over its rivals in cable programming. Short of criminal enterprise, few business models in the world have been as lucrative. A typical cable or satellite bundle costs about $100 per household. In simplified form, when a customer sends in a monthly payment, the cable company sends a cut to each channel included in this bundle. Some channels get paid more than others, and ESPN gets the most. Carriers pay an average of $7.21 per month for every customer who gets ESPN as part of a bundle. Fox News, by comparison, gets a buck. 41. Bravo, 30 cents. So with almost 90 million homes still getting ESPN, that adds up to just under $8 billion per year. And yet, Ira, and I know I've thrown this stat out a thousand times on this show because it was the first time I really felt old. Uh, so I lectured to a class of undergraduates at Virginia Commonwealth University um, in, in media and communications. And to break the ice, I asked them, what do you guys watch on TV? And they looked at me like I was an idiot. Like, what do you mean TV, mister? We like to Netflix and chill. You know, we're on YouTube. We're on Hulu. And one one woman out of the class of 35 raised their hand and said, actually, I have cable, but it's because my landlord comped it as part of my package and everything. None of these people is going to pay for cable, right? And they are the vanguard. They are the future. If you're doing a discounted cash flow model and whatever into perpetuity, they're not signing up for this. They are Again, they are going to pay for Netflix. They're going to pay for Spotify. They came of age, you know, when the job market was awful. They're, I hate to throw the millennial thing around, but cable's dead with them. I, I think that's part of the systemic no, risk that he was talking about. Yeah. So talk. So what is what is that? Well, I mean, I think you're right. There's two things happening. I mean, right now, one, people are abandoning cable or just failing to adopt it. Uh, that's what you're talking about, the generational shift. They also, in recent rounds of deals with the with the carriers, which, you know, they do bring incredible power to those negotiations. And basically the way they played it last time around was you're going to pay us more than you even have before. And in order to get that, they slightly relaxed. This is according to reporting in Sports Business Journal that Iger actually contested on an earnings call, but they slightly relaxed the demand that for sort of being in 90% of homes. They said, okay, you can put us in 80%. And the carriers quite naturally said, fine, we're going to offer bundles that don't have you. And customers went for that. So there's that thing happening, the sort of so-called cord shavers. But I think the cord nevers are what you're talking about. That's the, the parlance for the people who are just never going to sign up for cable. I, their plan for that is twofold right now. One, they hope that these sling TV type things, the PlayStation View, that Google has one that just came out, they're, they're in all of those. And they plan to be in as many as they can. And for now, they're able to command the same kind of fee structure. 
Uh, now, that said, I think none of those places are really making a lot of money with this, so I don't know how sustainable it is. But that's one thing that, that ESPN is doing and, and is hopeful about. And you've got you know more than a million people already in that kind of over-the-top bundle that looks like a cable package. Okay, so it, there is there is some jargon there. And with both right. of you, you talk about cord shavers over the top, right? Mm-hmm. In the traditional relationship, I'm paying, say, Cable Town Corp, mm-hmm. 100, 130 bucks a month, uh, a satellite company. They they forced me to take on, you know, I could take very super basic cable, you know, 25 channels plus CNN and Fox and the Weather Channel. Mm-hmm. I could take a next tier and maybe had on some, some premium movie channels like HBO or, or Cinemax and the like. Uh, but there isn't that much choice in it. In a super skinny bundle, you can have much more a la carte pricing power and say, well, I just really watch five, six channels at most, and I'm not going to pay you 100 bucks. I'll pay you, what, 30 bucks, 35 bucks. And is there anything out there right now? And this is where I was trying to you know, press my mind in the article where ESPN has come out and said, yeah, we will, we will give you uh, – we will cut to the chase and offer you that one option so you can, in fact uh, – you know, unshackle yourself from the tyranny of a $130 cable bill. I certainly haven't seen it. No. The closest thing, and everyone thought maybe this was them about to do it, is they, is Disney invested a billion dollars in this company, BamTech, which is a spinoff of Major League Baseballs that specializes in, in live sports streaming over the internet. And they are working right now on a package that is the first time that that will be an ESPN-branded standalone subscription streaming service, something that you pay for, uh, but that is, is is a supplement. It's an experiment for them, and it, and they're looking at it for now as something that you would get in addition to uh, your cable bundle. And they're not going to put any. They're not poaching because they can't really. Their their contracts won't let them take the stuff that's on ESPN the network and put it in something like this. So they're going to take spare stuff and they're going to cobble it together with rights that Major League Baseball holds and make a thing uh, and sell it on you know a kind of Netflix style model and. That is for them, you know, right now it's sort of just toe in the water. Um, uh, but there's a chance also that, that bundles will revive themselves in an Internet way. In other words, that Sling TV and these everybody's getting into it now. There's news that Verizon wants to do it. Comcast wants to do it outside of its cable footprint um, to just give you over the Internet some bundle of content. Uh, but still bundled, maybe smaller, maybe, you know, 30, 40, 50 dollars, different bag of channels. You know, you know how it's going to work is, is to be seen. But ESPN thinks that they can be in that space and and maybe uh, still keep the, the gravy train going. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Ira Boudway, staff writer at Bloomberg Businessweek, where he co-authored this week's glorious cover ESPN. Even sports fans prefer not paying for cable. It's about the company's existential crisis uh, with with cord cutting and uh, millennial viewing habits and whatnot and all of the enormous obligations it has to pay the the leagues for multi-year carriage agreements. And here in studio with me is Neil Patel, managing director at the Martin Agency. He was previously an executive at Disney with many hands in uh, new media assets. Um, Neil, I have a question broadly. Yep. Uh, while this is happening at ESPN, we see Time Warner uh, still actively trying to shack up with AT&T. And there's a whole other paradigm at play there potentially where they're saying, you know, if, if you're AT&T and you really believe in the, the strength of your network and the fact that a lot of people are going to carry this stuff on Wi-Fi broadband and other people's broadband – they are going to be able to bundle that sort of access with the indispensable kind of HBO library. You talk about Game of Thrones and everything else they have going on. Disney does not have distribution. And we always thought that the distribution and and, and content multi-bundle thing died with AOL Time Warner and Time Warner Cable altogether in 2000, 2001, 2002, the worst deal in history. But now suddenly it's making sense. It's uh, it's feeling like uh, deja vu all over again if you look at it in the context of the original AOL deal. And it does, uh, you know, to the, you know, on one hand you feel like, well, uh, you know, Gosh, what's this about? Are we? Or did they not learn from the past? Uh, but it's a different environment today. And I would say, if you're somebody who owns distribution or modern version of pipes, uh, you're probably tired of getting uh, held hostage by the content guys, and you probably want a piece of that in some form to have some leverage uh, and not be completely dependent on the content guys uh, and content making is very difficult even for the guys who do it every day. The hit rate is low and so forth. It's been actually 
you know, as the Amazons and Netflix have, you know, recently shown, uh, you know, pretty good facility at making that kind of thing happen and be good at content, but to do it consistently over time and more importantly, have the libraries that these guys have like Time Warner that go back 70, 90, 100 years, uh, that's extremely valuable. Uh, and that's what those companies like Time Warner have their value in. So I could see why AT&T would be interested on the Disney side, you know, there's probably – people don't really know – maybe a lot of people don't know this. Uh, but when Iger first took over, there was this famous, infamous, whatever, uh, probably famous meeting uh, where all the executives were taken to an offsite at Walt Disney World. And they did a big sort of uh, examination of the business and where it was. And I think they hired BCG or somebody to come in and talk about where the company ought to go. But one of the big conclusions of that time was get out of distribution. Get out of owning pipes. Um, and uh, it's pretty much been a big part of the Iger era at, uh, at Disney. Uh, they got it out of Radio Disney. They got it out of a lot of their assets uh, that had anything to do with distribution. Uh, they've hung on to ABC, but that has, there's other reasons why they did that. But So I can't see the DNA of the company changing a whole lot in the short term uh, with uh, during the Iger era, which is extended here for a year or two. But uh, maybe that will change going forward. I actually am very uh, bullish on excited as a watcher of the company and a fan of the company uh, uh, on the BAMTech investment because they're willing to do an experiment. Only Disney could do a billion-dollar experiment. Um, and I think they're very good at learning uh, historically, uh, trying things and uh, working it out. Uh, Ira, in your article, you mentioned, uh, you know, hey, these guys are not going to have to get used to customer retention. They're going to have to use to churn all the sort of things that uh, companies that deal with consumers directly have to deal with. And I think if it were any other entertainment conglomerate getting into this, uh, I think like Viacom or somebody like that, they would have difficulty with a lot of those things. There's a lot of Disney DNA on how to get customers, how to hang on to them and make them fans. Uh, and it's actually pretty strong DNA in the theme park business, particularly for them, uh, that they're very good at transferring onto uh, creating uh, you know, uh, a great customer experience that people will come back to. And that's not just the on-air content that will go to people, but to your point, how the inbound call comes in is ha and handled, how the customer complaints handled. They have very good DNA in that area that the traditional cable guys, I think everybody to acknowledge, has uh, not been really good at that, you know, getting and keeping customers. It's funny when you talk about uh, distribution. I mean, ESPN's big experiment with that in 2006 was this phone where they were going to have a cell plan. They would sell you with a piece of hardware. Uh, that would come with highlights, you know, and scores five seconds ahead of SportsCenter, and it was a fantastic bomb, $150 million. Uh, Steve Jobs famously called it the dumbest effing idea he'd ever heard, and uh, this, it didn't work. Uh, and they sort of took from that that they will just be on everyone else's platform. Yeah, and that was part of the experiment that uh, I, I was actually there when that f uh, phone was developed right after, uh, and it was developed with a lot of money and a lot of fanfare and a lot of hope and with a lot of very smart strategic planning guys uh, saying, yeah, this is the bet we need to make. And uh, yeah, uh, that coincided with uh, not Steve uh, Steve's uh, statement, but also making a decision uh, not soon after to say, you know what, we don't want to be in distribution We've got the strongest brands in the business, and I think they still do, mm -hmm. uh, as a company, not just uh, sub-brands like, you know, what Time Warner has. They've got a strong Harry Potter brand, but I don't know if people feel warm and prickly about uh, Time Warner itself. Uh, so they said, we're going to just bet, bet on brands, and I think they're still betting on that. And, you're beginning, and I think uh, it was interesting to in your article to see, oh, okay, these guys who are setting up the new – bundles are, uh, you know, having to pay near cable rates for each subscriber. Mm -hmm. uh, their individual profitability be damned, but uh, they will get that. To me, it says, okay, the brand power still needs to be in there because these guys need an ESPN in their package in order to sell their packages, and they're going to take a loss on it probably 
to get that to happen. Yeah, they're essential still, and they they still have a a good deal of power. And I think, you know, to your point about learning how to go direct to to consumer, that is what the BAM Tech purchase was largely about. Disney's good at it, but not necessarily in the context of streaming. And uh, BAM Tech has built that expertise. They know, for instance, when to build a customer so that they just got their paycheck, right? And that the, the, the payment doesn't... Uh, you know, get bounced. So they are, they know all of that stuff and Disney's counting on them to make that a smooth thing. And it's also, I think, kind of an escape hatch. They have a, in that deal, they have the right in four years to become majority owner, uh, to buy another third of Bamtech. And I think, you know, they're looking at that as, look, if this really goes sour fast, we could maybe, you know, move quicker into, you know, and sort of abandon the bun- the cable bundle if we have to. Yeah, and they also can say, okay, if, if if this thing turns out badly, our bet is capped at a billion dollars, mm-hmm. probably-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it goes, yeah, you're right. They can uh, exercise that option to say, okay, we're in it. And look, it's got us, you, me, and uh, Robin talking about uh, a potential viable future for ESPN, which is something... Iger needs to, wants to, and the company wants to be communicating uh, to analysts. Yeah. Uh, my friend Michael Morris at Guggenheim Securities uh, upped his, uh, his uh, you know, he t- turned it into a buy rating recently and it popped their stock a, a bit because that was one of the reasons, BAMTech being one of the reasons, he thought that uh, Disney was going to do better than most people thought. Crazy, but ESPN, um, Disney, the parent company, is back up at its 52-week high, 113 bucks. It, it fell to as low as $90. Still, Ira Boudway, that market capitalization is $179 billion, which sounds great until you look at Google, Alphabet, whatever you want to call it, is $580 billion. Facebook is $411 billion. It shows you that the rents are accruing elsewhere. If you're looking at the future of advertising, the future of digital, those dollars are disproportionately going to these platforms. Well, here's one for you. I I heard this. I don't think it's about to happen, but is it as a rumor, as a speculative thing? What if Apple bought ESPN? Would that make sense? Could that work? You tell me, Neil Patel. Would that make sense? (laughs) I think it would because... You have a global distribution system in a way. Um, it's kind of a weird deal. I mean, it could happen. The, re- the weird deal of here, we uh, Apple, I believe, owns a piece of uh, Disney, some portion of it. Uh, from leftover from the Steve Jobs from Pixar the, 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 Absolutely, the, the Pixar right. deal in the Steve Jobs era. So how is that going to work? Uh, for, uh, both shareholders would have to be assured that everybody got the right amount of money for ESPN. Uh, but that would be an interesting interesting play because uh, Apple's job is to try to make Beats and the rest of it, their business, that side of their business work better than it has been historically. It would be interesting. Uh, again, going to Michael Morris's uh, Guggenheim Securities report, he actually valued the company two different ways. He said, all right, you look at the networks business and I'm going to give it, I think he gave it a 16, 16X uh, P, PE and uh, – and then he looked at the rest of the business, the theme parks and the most – really all the Disney-branded businesses. And he said, you know, that's around a 21 uh, multiple. So the way he looked at it and that's what the conclusion came to and he's one of the smartest guys I know about these things. Uh, it, it was an interesting way to value it. We so, should have gotten Guggenheim to sponsor this show. If well, we, uh, we, could, we, we should have. We should have. Uh, Michael owes me more than a cup of coffee I guess. But anyways, it's, a, it's an interesting way to think about uh, how to value that company. But uh, – but you're still looking at two brand, very brand-heavy companies, very uh, high-affinity uh, uh, assets uh, from consumers. You could argue that's their moat. Uh, and then you have these platforms like Google and Facebook. And if you look at the whole ecosystem, yeah, if all of the value is accruing to those par- platforms uh, who don't make any of their own content. And th- how do you compete with that? Uh, how do you – because you need those platforms. For instance, if you're on the movie side of the business, you need those platforms to promote your movies and you're going to pay them whatever they want to promote those movies because there's nothing else like it or the video game business or whatever business you're in. Ira, I want to quote from your story again, which um, I've read several times and is, and is seeing uh, quite heavy tweetage. Um, tweetage? Is that a, is that a Farzadism? <laughs> it's a Farzadism, yes. Okay. Um, John Skipper, then an ESPN executive in 2011, he's now the network's president, told Variety, uh, really, in a world where you have the ability to control when you watch something, live sports breaks through in a way that's only going to continue to become more valuable. ESPN has since agreed to pay $1.9 billion per year for Monday Night Football. 
1.4 billion for NBA games, 700 million for Major League Baseball, and more than a billion for college football and basketball. To keep pace with the rising costs, he negotiated higher fees from carriers, the cable companies. Uh, that aggressiveness obviously has backfired now that we saw that that you know we so much has changed over five years. The the the, the pace of people abandoning cable and um, the the power of the networks and the alternatives and Netflix's ascent and over the top offerings. Uh, cut to the chase, ESPN has made some modest efforts to cut costs. It jettisoned 300 of its 8,000 employees in 2015 and is expected to let the contracts of some of its on-camera talent expire this year. What else can be done internally with these guys, right? They can they can cut corners. There's a tremendous amount of bloat. Anytime you go to an ESPN Super Bowl party or you know you go to a Florida-Georgia game, they're they have never really spared any expense. And I always recall, you know, doing stuff for ABC News and the like that those guys were always mindful of expenses. It wasn't an expense account culture. But suddenly these guys are are having to understand deprivation, relative deprivation. That's true. I mean, it was it was striking to me. They toured us through the Sports Center studio and they kind of at their peak broke ground on this big digital center broadcast content future proof facility that has you know, fiber backhaul and IP protocol for I mean they, it's a whiz bang facility and and they put within it this 10,000 square foot sports center studio with screens everywhere and uh, you know touch screen this and moving cameras and virtual screens projected onto the floor and just massive and it feels like that model for delivering sports highlights died almost the minute they opened it in 2014 that and the way even they use it now for sports center is to kind of reduce the size of that space when they show it to you because it just looks like too much it looks like bloat i'm always suspicious of anything called uh future proof because yeah. right away i'm like wait a minute I, that's uh, what what do you know that i don't know about that um but i could uh, you know i think i think it's an interesting notion because i think um the Cap Cities culture was famously uh, frugal, and uh, Cap Cities ABC, Cap which Cities Disney ABC. came in and acquired in exactly. the mid nineties, and uh, they were they're famously frugal about how they operate and what they did. So if the ABC culture is that way, I'm not surprised at all. And uh, frankly, their overall business uh, <laughs> demands they remain frugal because they only get paid one way: advertisers and maybe some uh, other fees, tra- retransmission fees. But uh, these guys get paid in so many ways. And post-acquisition, the business kept doing really well, and it's a get, had great margins. I'm not surprised uh, that uh, that this darling of the company got the resources it did and uh, did all the things it did. Ira, uh, you stress-tested some of the financials here. One of the critical uh, parts of the analysis of your feature story that cover in this week's Business Week. If ESPN were to charge 15 bucks a month for a standalone streaming channel, it would need more than 43 million subscribers to match the money it collects from cable carriers. HBO, by comparison, has about 35 million total subscribers in the U.S., including cable and over the top. And HBO, we know, has been really proactive with HBO Go, HBO On Demand. You know, I still I still mooch on my brother's, uh, you know, subscription password. They're, they're good with, with spreading that out there and letting, letting millennials and the like feel like it's indispensable. Does 43 million look insurmountable? It's a really good question. The pricing question for them and kind of if they could replicate this in a direct-to-consumer world, it's tough. I mean, there was a survey by Rich Greenfield, who we quote in this story, an analyst for BTIG. He's the the sort of cable bundle bear and certainly the ESPN bear uh, out there. And he did a survey, commissioned a survey, where they asked people if you could pay $20 for ESPN and ESPN2 together just that, uh, you know, Netflix style. And they got, I think, 6% of people said yes, and another 9% said maybe. And so he took that as an implication that even if you got that full 15% of the TV universe to go for that offer, you're talking about losing more than half of your revenue, uh, you know, against the way the dual model now, the way the cable fee model goes. So he's pessimistic about that. I think it is hard to imagine that they don't lose some money, that it doesn't have to get a little bit leaner in that model. Uh, Because there's a lot of people who don't know. I mean, people are accustomed to getting ESPN at no additional charge. I don't know. People don't know that they're paying $8 a month for the thing. And then you'd not only be asking them to suddenly pay for something that they are used to getting in a certain sense for free, uh, they also suddenly you're asking them to pay more for it. Um, And it's different where HBO, you know, has always been an add-on. 
there's always been a roughly a certain price that people have been asked to pay, and HBO spent a lot of time building that case to its customers. ESPN really has been doing a different thing. They've been building a different case to the carriers. Uh, and so I don't know that that, that you know, if you sw- flip the switch tomorrow, I think a lot of money goes away. Ira, I chafe at this idea that some of the 120 bucks that I repatriate to Comcast every month is going to an ESPN channel dedicated to lax debros. <laughs> um, I just want, I, even if it's 10 cents, I want it rebated back to I, me. I, I think Ira makes a great point. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Ira Boudway of Bloomberg Businessweek. He wrote this week's cover on ESPN's existential crisis. And here in studio with me is the Martin Agency's managing director, Neil Patel. He was previously an executive at Disney, which owns ESPN. And I do have a question for you, Neil Patel. Go ahead. Uh, when, we, when we try to break these numbers out, like when you say 43 million subscribers, for example, paying what if you want to take a... Uh, $10, $20, $30 a month. These are calculations that you guys do internally. My problem as a customer is if I'm comparing that to the nut of, say, $120, $130 a month going to Comcast, I pay, like in my media eating habit, I pay Netflix 10 bucks a month, 12 bucks a month. I have a high willingness to pay because I think it's great. I have an Amazon Prime account, which now includes some real premium media. Um you know, I am paying a cable company, even if I were to go straight to over the top and not have anything on their, you know, 500 channels and nothing's on tier, I'm paying for Wi-Fi and they're increasingly kind of shaking me down for that. We don't know where net neutrality is headed. We don't know if there's, they're going to put their thumb on the pipe. Um, when I add that all together and you're going to have ESPN come out of the woodwork and say, we think you should pay us 20, 30 bucks a month, whatever that kind of bundle is. In the end, I'm paying something like 130 bucks a month. I think you have two things. Uh, first, going back to Ira's earlier point, uh, you have people's – you've habituated people a certain way. And as we all know, humans' habits are very hard to form and very hard to break. I think he's absolutely spot on on the HBO piece, which we've always thought about as an add-on and we're used to reaching into our pocket for and ESPN is something that always came with it. Um, so I think people are now going to have to decide – uh, is it a have-to-have or a nice-to-have? And I think we all know people for whom ESPN is a have-to-have versus a nice-to-have. So that's, I think changing that habit in some way, shape, or form is going to be very, very difficult. And we know this because in the ad business, we're always trying to change some habit of a, uh, of a potential c- customer in, a, in the favor of our clients. It's not easy to do. The second thing is, to your point um, – there are effectively two kinds of shelf constraints here, right? Uh, one is the one you're identifying, which is, you know, people make only so much money. And we all have tons of uh, you know, political discourse around how incomes have stagnated over the last 10, 20 years, whatever it's been. So how much are you going to reach into your wallet to do that? Uh, and that's going to get to that need to have versus nice to have issue. We advertisers and those of us who represent them have always subsidized that in some form or shape. You know, it used to be like, you know, we would look at something with 40 million or 70 million, uh, you know, as an audience and say, okay, that's finally at a place where we could probably put our clients' money into it. Well, there's not many of those places left anymore where that kind of assemblage happens, number one, or in the case of sports, has the kind of deep engagement that we have. So... Advertisers are going to somehow have to show up here and we're interested in showing up uh, here to subsidize it because there's only so many dollars you, Robin Farzad, and all your friends can reach into their wallet to do that. So that's that's one constraint number one. How much money do you really have to put to it? The second constraint is even you, Robin, only have 24 hours a day Uh, and – that, no, no, let me underscore that there is a content glut right now. Absolutely. The golden age of absolutely. content. I could not possibly catch up with everything absolutely. everybody wants me to watch. And I've I've acclimated myself. Like I, I, I don't have time, especially as a father now, to, to stick around and watch all the entire late games. I go to Twitter for the highlights. And by the way, sometimes it's real time. Yes. You know, an Odell Beckham Jr. catch happens and then people have it in, in high def. Some people are, are periscoping absolutely. it or Facebook living it. And ESPN is an afterthought. Absolutely. So you you just got the snack you really wanted of that content, uh, even a morsel as it is, and you only have 24 hours, as does uh, the millennial who may or may not have children yet uh, and doesn't have uh, that. But the issue I always look at is, okay, there's 24 hours. Every human has 24 hours. So there's only so much media you can consume. And yeah, we've sort of expanded that shelf space. And now you can consume media while you're on a train or 
you know, walking around on the beach via your phone or whatever. But still, that's a constraint that all this content's now got to fit. And it comes in these other bundles through other ways. So it's a it's a real challenge. Now, from an advertiser standpoint, we're just trying to be in all of those places with whoever's going to take us there with high affinity, high engagement content, whatever it is. Uh, our challenge is, uh, you know, we'd rather be with ESPN. We'd rather be near HBO. Uh, but the cat video du jour may be uh, drawing uh, more people in deeper engagement. And we've got to figure out how to be there in the right way. Two things that speak to ESPN to give them some credit here. One is that they they could maybe be the person who you get that morsel from. They certainly think they can, and they've built some apps that have you know pretty good reach, and they will show you things in tiny increments, uh, and maybe figure out how to monetize that. Uh, you know, certainly they are not against. They don't want to give away the whole live event that is their bread and butter on cable. They're not going to show you for free the whole NBA playoff game or whatever it may be, but they're happy to give you that that highlight uh, and, and reach you in that way on mobile. Uh, uh, and there's some money they can make there to help make up for what maybe they're going to lose in the legacy business. And the other thing is, I think, in the pitch to advertisers, when you talk about you know, the people on YouTube and, and elsewhere and all the distractions and all the sort of uh, limits on, on people's media diets, that one thing they can say now is that we are safe. Uh, if you look at what's happening with YouTube right now where they're having some trouble where people, advertisers don't want to wind up next to some white supremacist, yes. they're, I'm sure ESPN, when they go to upfronts or whatever else, is going to say, look, you're never going to have your ad next to a white supremacist if it's on Sports Center. you know. So, that, unless he was an infamous right. closer from the Atlanta Braves, <laughs> yeah, right? That, writing, writing the, that's a, that's that's, an that's a whole reference. different thing, but I, I think he's. Uh, that's another is. We are extremely concerned, and this is not a new thing. We've always been very concerned. We want to be adjacent to great content that's been curated, that is uh, uh, beneficial and reflects well on the brand, because we spend so much time building these brands, and they have economic value of their own. To our clients, we do not want to be next to the, uh, you know, to wrong content, uh, whatever your political beliefs, uh, you know, we want to be next to ESPN. It's something we can, we can, we and the shareholders uh, to whom these adver- uh, our clients report to want to be able to say, yeah, that's what we stand for. That's what our brand stands for. We're next to and we're in these specific kinds of programming that are safe, good, and that people are really engaged with. You could be safe and good and people could be disinterested, not that interested you in know, that kind I, of content. You know, Ira, it does make me nostalgic for, was it 2004, the great malice at the palace? Uh, Indiana <laughs> versus Detroit. Now, that would have been amazing if YouTube had existed back then. <laughs> you could have watched stuff in slow-mo. Like, you could have seen it memed up. You know, I, it, it's sad that that was so ahead of its time. I do want to throw out something else because you, you talked about some in, important points on the ecosystem of distribution and content. There's a vested interest in you, even Neil, as an ad agency person, there's a vested interest to kind of keep this keystone in there together because if ESPN is an indicator species, and I know I just mix metaphors, if that goes, then it throws into question the indispensability of cable writ large and then agency of record, and we get into this whole rabbit hole existentially. And I see at the same time there's a headline, Neil and Ira, two days ago, T-Mobile, put out an offer gifting customers a free year of MLB.com TV premium ahead of the 2017 season. That is really exciting to me, right? I would actually consider to see my beloved Dodgers, uh, you know, stream the games for free on Wi-Fi at night. Most of these games air at 10 o'clock Eastern time. I I like the idea that uh, a company that has me captive, which I'm not with T-Mobile, I'm with Verizon right now, but they're going to have to make similar types of deals. Is, is bundling that experience into my uh, package every month. If I'm paying the telco company, you know, and I, I have a family plan. So my willingness to pay, when I when I talked about that budget earlier, where I'm paying Comcast 120 bucks a month, I'm paying Verizon another 80 bucks a month. I think, Ira, Neil, that bundle, which used to be called the triple play, where cable, TV, telephone, and internet is now almost like a quadruple quintuple play. I think that's one way to look at it. The other way I, I look at it is uh, it costs X amount of money to move you from Verizon to T-Mobile. Uh, they're basically creating a subsidy. It's a it's a different form of marketing, right? It's a subsidy to subsidize your uh, content habit. Uh, and they're calling it, well, you're going to get that for free. It's in there. And it's a gateway drug. That's what MLB and they're hoping and that you'll get, you're going to get hooked on it. But I kind of think it leads to an arms race. Okay, it's going to work for a year or two, 
But it becomes a lot like the magazine business used to be where they'd almost give away the magazine to you for like $2 a year <laughs> because you're worth more to them as a, as a uh, prospect uh, to advertisers. So c- do I see Verizon then coming in and bidding up, uh, going to MLB saying, I'll give you more money if you make it exclusive to me you know, next year? And then you, you, Robin, shift over? I could see this turning into an arms race where the only folks, again, who benefit are the rights holders – um, and the customer does only because a brand is of some kind, that in this case T-Mobile, is willing to subsidize it. And Ira, I actually bring in a, a, another big horseman of tech, which I don't know if you want to call it a media company. It's certainly chameleonic. It's one of the most envied companies in America. It now has the second wealthiest human being on the planet and Jeff Bezos, its founder, who – went and spent a couple of pennies and bought the Washington Post and Amazon Prime has award-winning shows on Amazon Prime Video. Amazon is now worth $423 billion, which is, again, twice as much as Disney, more than twice as much as Disney, uh, ESPN's parent. Amazon has gotten me into the habit of thinking things in terms of a bundle and a subscription, like my willingness to pay for Amazon Prime, and I know this is kind of going out on left field, Ira, but I increasingly want them to tuck more options and more perks into that for me. Mm -hmm. And if if it's award-winning programming writ large, you know, Jeff Tambor and and Transparent or some of these other shows that are really getting talked about, Oscar-worthy things, and a, a person who doesn't even care about the core profitability of Amazon ostensibly is getting a pass from Wall Street. Of course he's going to go and seed great content. He subsidizes music. He subsidizes all these things. Maybe there's a fit in that world kind of to make them the indispensable e-commerce company that they also want to put in, you know, as a perk on Amazon Prime that you get an ESPN subscription or an MLB subscription or an NBA subscription. Yeah, I mean, I think if anybody of the people we've talked about is going to reinvent the bundle, it's Amazon right now. They they are doing that really well. And I think it started with delivery, <laughs> home delivery. But, uh, but they uh, have actually begun to dabble in bidding for sports rights. Um, and, uh, and they are not alone in that Twitter, Facebook. A lot of, of these uh, tech companies now are seeing a value in live sports and are beginning to try to figure out how to bring it into whether that's to make your Facebook feed have nice things when you look at Facebook Live or keep you on Twitter, you know, and show you the thing you're already tweeting about right next to your feed or whatever. There's different reasons why they might want it. And Amazon clearly is just as a content play to add to their bundle. Uh, there's there's some compelling reasons they might want to get into it. I think what's interesting to me about all this is that you there's a way in which maybe this rebounds to the benefit of ESPN and the cable TV bundle because it's complicated and and there's a certain amount of frustration I think for cu- customers where it's like okay this month I really want HBO but then there's a show on Netflix that I'd like to see but then this one's on Amazon Prime but and it just after a while you're sort of managing that <laughs> that that you know your what you spend where you spend your time sure you suddenly have so many providers that this idea of well wait if i had one provider who bundled this all together for me and in a way it's educating consumers about what they've been getting with the cable bundle and i think there are some people like look just bring on the 200 channels it's there i pay one person and you know and i know espn is going to be on it and several other things and i think they're kind of hoping that that happens i think in a way they hope that when you see this product they bring out with bam tech uh, that you're like, well, this is, you know, not the best baseball games and and sort of, uh, you know, not major conference football and cricket. Like, I'm not as interested in this. The really good stuff's over there on ESPN. That's not the worst thing for ESPN if that's your conclusion that, oh, yeah, this thing that I've taken for granted, actually, maybe that's where I'd, I'd want to invest my time and money. Again, again, it's a price discovery thing, though. If I confront the subscriber with this idea that this is how much it's going to cost you to buy me a la carte, mm-hmm. I would chafe at that. I think that's absolutely right. And I think if you're going to fear anybody, if you're, if you're a traditional content company um, to be disrupted, it's going to be Amazon. Because there are two things that uh, maybe all the content companies are not. They're fearless and they have deep pockets. Uh, that's a dangerous combination if you're up against them. And you know, in retrospect, if you look at Amazon Prime now, it seems like uh, a no-brainer to say, well, why wouldn't we just put that into our Prime package, particularly for People like my wife for whom Amazon Prime is like a near religious, uh, you know, uh, experience. So every time that package shows up. Um, 
bundling it that way, having e-commerce profits subsidize it, uh, you know, reducing your customer acquisition costs for getting and keeping people in Amazon Prime where you have many other ways to make money off of them uh, creates a different kind of subsidy and could, you know, they're making it work. And I think that's a that's an amazing thing to watch. And um, uh, I can't imagine that others wouldn't follow. If they did put ESPN up for bid, uh, if they ever wanted to spin it out, um, the real question would be, who does someone like Disney want to keep it away from? Uh, because it's a valuable asset. And it goes back to, from an advertiser's uh, perspective, there's very few places and things we can count on where there's a live audience that's a large audience. And even if it's a niche audience, let's say it's cricket, which all the Indian engineers in uh, Silicon Valley watch very religiously. If it's a deeply engaged audience, it's a live audience, and there's an unknown outcome, that's what you get in sports that you very <laughs> rarely get anywhere else. That is a valuable audience. Uh, and however it's marketed, I think people who are own distribution of any kind are going to bid up that, and we're going to show up to subsidize it because we can't find those people very easily. Ira, in closing, I wonder if uh, virtual reality and the the whole Oculus thing and, and, and putting on the smartphone future glasses and jetsoning out to a game halfway across the planet is on balance more of a risk to ESPN and the bundle versus an opportunity. I mean, after all, it seems like the technology is dispersed. You know, Apple wants to get in on it. Samsung wants to get in on it. Facebook spared no expense to go out and buy some of the technology very early on. What do you think is going to happen? It's tough to say. I tried on the next VR. They seem to be the best just in terms of production when you talk about a virtual reality, certainly with live events and sports, and they are the ones partnering with the NBA. And I watched a game, you know, through their uh, system, and, and it's 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 different than anything you get with a flat screen. And, and I think if they can perfect it where the depth of field is there and the crispness is there and... Uh, you know, there's there's some problems still with it, but if they can get it down, I think people will pay for it. Now, who gets that money? I'm not sure. And I, I think, you know, ESPN's attitude toward it is basically it's not there yet. Uh, they do dabble in it. They, they showed us a thing where you can sit down and basically have a virtual man cave, a virtual den where all of the different ESPN screens are there, you know, through your headset. And basically, it's a way to add the number of screen to your screens in your home. But in the end, you're just watching screens. Um, so that's really where, where they're at with it. But uh, so they don't see it as something that is, you know, that they need to be diving into so that everyone can be courtside with headsets on to watch ESPN. I don't, I don't know about that, man, because in closing, let me share a little anecdote with you. I think I was watching the NBA on TNT or TBS or something, and there's Charles Barkley with Shaq or a bunch of people. You know, Charles Barkley, you terrible, and all that stuff that he's saying. And there was an offer. I, I think you could find this on YouTube. It was a, it was a real crystallizing moment for me where— the NBA.com offered a special one-night package a la carte. You could watch the Lakers and the Bucks for $7. And Charles Barkley's like, please, the Lakers and the Bucks, you should be paying me $7. <laughs> and I'm thinking, how are they going to navigate this? Because, okay, I asked myself, in what circumstance would I pay $7, $10, $20 to watch the Lakers for the Bucks in their kind of current mediocre iterations. Well, if you offered me a chance to be on the scene at the Staples Center, um, you know, 3,000 miles away and feel that after I got the kids down to bed and bath is done and everything and to transport my mind and that escapism, dang, I would do that. I, 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 to I totally agree. I think people are going to sure, pay for that. Am I sure it's going to go to ESPN? Doubtful. But do you really care? As a consumer, you don't really care. Uh, and I think they will get this technology figured out. Eventually, it'll. Get but we don't good know enough. who that. My my point in, in finally in closing is we don't know who the they is. Is it going to be Disney, the erstwhile you know media heavy hitter? Is it going to be Facebook? Is it going to be Amazon? Is it going to be Google? Is it going to be Apple? There are so many new players out there, and and the incumbents of the world, Time Warner, if that folds into a mobile company, uh, Viacom, which we hardly mentioned here, which is another struggling company. You have News Corp. We didn't talk about Rupert Murdoch. He doesn't want to be left behind. He wants to bid up prices. And he's always believed in sports. That's how he's built his media businesses. So I, I think all of those guys are going to be in there. I think it's – and I think the experience is going to get perfected and I think it's going to be some kind of a premium experience. I think you're not going to spend any more money, Robin, than you already do. But I think it's going to now compete and erode against uh, movie tickets, what you might have spent on buying a game, a video game. 
right? If you're uh, a 19 year old or whatever, I think it's going to come out of the entertainment wallet, but it's going to cannibalize other things. And it's going to be a richer experience. People going to, I think people going to pay for it. It's just not there yet. But again, someone like an ESPN, someone like an Amazon has the deep pockets to, if they can just keep experimenting and get there first, uh, they're going to be the brands that everybody's going to turn to to say, well, tell me what the superlative experience is, and I'm probably willing to pay you for it. And it's going to be a la carte. I mean, to your point, if you're a Bucks fan, even if they're doing poorly, you might want to still be at that game 3,000 miles away uh, at uh, 8 o'clock at night. Ira, there are a few seconds left on the shot clock. Close us out. I'll go back to something Neil said that I think maybe ultimately who gets paid in this is the NBA and LeBron James. Absolutely. Know, they're and his agent. The ones, yeah. They're, <laughs> they're going to be the ones who have that, that event that you want to be at. The thing you want to see ultimately is is what they do. Ira Boudway, staff writer at Bloomberg Business Week. Beautiful cover this week on ESPN's Decline. Uh, I really appreciate it, sir. Thank you for having me on. And here in studio with us was Neil Patel, managing director at the Martin Agency, former executive at Disney, a jack of all things digital media. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks this week to Bloomberg Radio. Catch us and love us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. We are on Twitter at FullDRadio and on Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. You cannot, however, find us on the ESPN phone um, any longer. <laughs> I'm Robin Farzad. Back, 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 back with you next week. Because it always has been sports and wine for you.